All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. I got news for you, pal. You ain't leading but two things right now. Jack and shit. Jack left town. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. in my office and I heard a rocket. Describe the rocket, sir. Does this mean we're not friends anymore? Not me. I'm in my prime. Your mind. Ain't it cool? First you want to kill me, now you want to kiss me. Blow. Good. Bad. I'm the guy with the gun. What up everyone, DJ Anubis. Here with you on the Metal Time Radio Podcast, episode 141, The Words of Chaos. Here with you today doing a special episode. Special Words of Chaos dedicated to... The movie Suspiria, Dario Argento. Um, even though we're already in early November, I guess we'll close out our Shocktober with another horror film that's Noob's favorite of all time. And I felt it'd be kind of nice to pay tribute to it um for a couple reasons one i do really love the movie and neko does too but uh also i had seen some articles uh recently because you know we talked about the youtube with mm-hmm. my hall where i got some dvds and uh, i had forgotten that jessica harper was in fan of the paradise which came out a few years earlier and uh but i saw an article on her that i thought was very interesting because uh, i do find her to be a very good actress so we're going to be talking a little bit about the article about her. Uh, there's a couple other articles we'll talk about with the movie itself. And, of course, at the end, uh, we went back and watched it the other day. So we'll revisit that in our Retro Duty Movie Vault segment. Um, new music. A lot of great stuff coming your way. Uh, Whitechapel. Also got some um, <clears throat> Evoking Winds. Thulcandra. And the Rock Block New Mastodon. <laughs> Mastodon. Mastodon. You're talking like me now. Yeah, Jerry Cantrell uh, from Allison Chains has a solo record. I'll get new stuff from him. Neko's Pick of the Week. New Death SS. Also got some, uh, what else we got here? Sunless, Exhumed. New stuff from them as well as Elimination. So a lot of great music. I uh, got a lot of stuff from the promotional labels and uh, sites that give us some music. So we'd be looking for that. And uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with this. So... Uh, we'll get right into our music, and then we'll get to our first topic of Suspiria. And I, we just opened it up with E-Rock doing a cover of Goblin's Suspiria theme, so... You can look him up on YouTube at E-Rock 
think it's 311 E-Rock, isn't it? Hold on. I'm pretty sure it's 311. 331 E-Rock. 331 E-Rock. He's also on Facebook, Eric Calderone. And, um... I think it's just Calderone. Oh. But it sounds more, uh... It sounds Italian, and that's how we Calderone. That's how we would say it. You uh, might correct me and say it's actually pronounced Calderone. Right. Um, maybe it is Calderon, but Al Capone, Eric Capone. Eric Capone, but he um, he's got some really good stuff up on his Facebook and his YouTube, doing covers, and I mean he goes all over. He just did like a Harry Potter one. Yeah, I was so. gonna say Harry Potter. He he did a Lady Gaga one. He did Don't Fear the Reaper. But it was in the style of, of Ghost. Ghost. Yeah. So we, we are very big fans of him. Um, I I really dig it. I, I've i been... He's a very nice guy. He's been doing verses with us when we do um, with the Fat Samurai Guy. I feel bad this week seemed a little bit light for uh, Fat Samurai Guy um, for verses because a lot of people weren't able to make it. Um, and we weren't even able to make well, it. Well, so. Samurai goes to that occasionally, but you know... Eventually, we've been been pretty regular, but we had we had other plans last night that are usually we're not usually Thursday planners. Yeah, so but you know we'll get back into the verses and whatnot. And anywho, I I thought it was fitting that E Rock had done that cover like a couple days before we were going to do this particular podcast. So I said, well, why not let them open up the show because it's about that movie. So. Kick off our first block. I got new stuff from Begot the Nephilim. Whitechapel, as I discussed earlier. Here's brand new Arch Spire. This is Abandon the Lanier, and we'll be back.
listening to Metal Tavern Radio. Come get it. Get lit. Yeah, and John too. <laughs> first article I'm going to get to, and actually I ended up looking up another one because the first one off of garage.vice.com, uh, you know, basically says Dario Argento is the most influential horror directors outside of Hitchcock. Well, the article really doesn't dive in too much into why he compares to Hitchcock or anything like that, but it just makes some cool points, and I have another article that we're going to talk a little bit about as well to add to it, but... Obviously, when it comes to Gallo movies and stuff like that during the 70s, and even we talk a little bit about like more modern Gallos like uh, The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears that mm-hmm. I really like a lot. Um, Suspiria is like, to me, like the epitome or the the uh, the big time movie that kind of showcases a lot of that, even though it's a little bit more supernatural horror than say like murder mystery which gal is mostly known for most of the time um argento was always big especially early in his earlier films with the uh the murder mystery stuff so uh the thing about the articles that we got going on uh most of them seem to happen like around the time that the remake for suspiria happened with luca uh guagadino's uh take on it we're not going to dive too much into the remake itself, um, but there was an interesting quote by Argento because he was not really happy about the way the movie was done. <laughs> but it's funny because he kind of contradicts himself. He made a comment in 2016. Uh, he says, Argento expressed frustration with the idea of a superior remake, however it may be told. Either you do it exactly the same way, in which case it's not a remake, it's a copy, which is pointless. Or... You change things and make another movie. In that case, why call it Suspiria now? I think you and I talked about this. I talked about it with somebody else. that like If you took the remake, because it, it, the remake actually includes the entire trilogy. Mm-hmm. So Inferno and Mother of Tears are all included in it. Too, so he just kind of, like, Luca just took them all and put them all together. So what I, I've always said about the remake is if you watch the remake before you watch the original you're going to i'm not gonna say you're gonna like the remake more but you're going to act like because we've seen the original first when we see the remake we're like eh, it's a it's a whole different style they really um what i found interesting is they ambiguously relate um refer to it being in the 70s kind of like during when it's in Germany and it's very cold, the Cold War, they're they're trying to really feel out like that's what the second movie is about. It's a whole different feeling. They're trying to get like women's um I don't wanna say women's liberation, but that's kinda of what it is. They're focusing more on that. Mm-hmm. In the original, it's almost like a fairy tale. Right. Like we saw in that documentary, they were really trying to make it like 
And I see Al- that like Snow White, Alice in Wonderland. Right. I see that more and more where the whole like Snow White thing comes into play, and I, I start to get it. Like after watching the documentary and listening to Dario talk about, it, I'm like, yeah, I can kind of see that. Like I, I kind of see the Alice in Wonderland aspect of it. You know, the use of color, uh, the the sound from Goblin, like it, it just overpowers the movie itself. The but sound, it, the the mu- the music is its own character. Right. It, it is. It moves you through the entire story. When there is a certain type of music playing, you know they're going into something dangerous. And you know I, I think I mean? that's an interesting thing because when most people talk about, like, when I see people who say, "Well, the remake was way better uh, than the original," a lot of the times it comes down to the presentation of the plot. We know that Argento's plot is a little clumsy. It's, it's you know, he didn't have, like, the biggest budget in the world or anything to work on this. Whereas Luca's vision is a little more strong. It's 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 put together, written well. Uh, but the thing that goes that's going for Argento is when you actually go back and look at it, it it's really less about the plot itself and just the use of his colors, the use of the music... Uh, the staging of how things are unfolding. It's all about atmosphere and, mm-hmm. and, and looks. And so, in a lot of ways, I can see the Hitchcock comparison there because Hitchcock was always about uh, the mystery behind it and, like, his use of black and white and the, the way that he shot his scenes. Well, that's a lot like Argento here, mm-hmm. um, how he's putting this stuff together. And almost, we talked about watching the movie that, like, like even the scene with the the opening with the apartment building and the colors and the way the the stained glass is at the top that becomes a you know it's almost like a foreshadowing of what's to come. Um, oh, the red. Yeah. The red. It's just red. Right, and so I kind of get you know why Argento is like so important here, and especially for Italian cinema. Like you know you have many. Gala was a big thing in Italy, and the Italians did a lot of that stuff during that time period. So I can kind of see why Argento's Suspiria would kind of stand out. Even though you can go back to Cat of Nine Tails or um, the the Bird with the Crystal Plumage stuff early in his career that was more mystery thrillers, uh, it wasn't really until Suspiria that he kind of like found his home with the colors. Now, obviously... Inferno focused more on the kills, and then uh, Mother of Tears, he kind of abandoned the whole color schemes and just went with story, which turns out to be less favorite of people in terms of the trilogy. But uh, the other thing, I, you know, about, like, we, we talked about it when uh, you first saw the remake, mm-hmm. how Luca used the dance more than Argento. Argento had the dancing... Academy is just sort of like backdrop. Luca used it as an actual tool of the witches in their coven, how they were utilizing the dances as... And remember I was saying that, like, I feel if you're going to hide a witch coven, the perfect place to do it is a ballet school. And I feel he, Luca, took from Argento and expanded on the idea. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, they were dancing. You, You saw the part um, where Susie was very faint and she, like, got sick in class. Kind of the same thing happened in the new version, but a little bit, like, you know, 
doubled or tripled like in the experience they use the dance and it makes sense just like in historical context women used to be tried as witches for being dancers Mm -hmm. women were witches if they could read women what did you do wrong danced on sunday yeah yeah i was (laughs) dancing uh if women could swim they were considered witches and this is all like in puritanical times however it's like the perfect idea you have a bunch of i mean and it's a a, if you've ever been involved in dance it is a very tight-knit group and it's a perfect you know place to you know pick out your next vessel or your next you know opportunity and to grow your coven because it's very easy if you're using a boarding prestigious dance school as your cover it's easy to influence these women and to take over them so easily yeah and i'll just say for those listening that uh if you have not seen this film we'll get to the plot synopsis when we get to our retro dv vault i know that's later on but for now, we're just going to focus on the actual articles that we're going to be discussing until we get to that point. So fear not. For those that haven't seen it, we will dive into the movie as far as what it's about uh, and more stuff involved with that. So, you know, we'll get to that when we get to that. Now, uh, we talked about, like, I watched a guy last night who, you know, he has his own YouTube channel. He was doing a reaction video to Suspiria. And although he wasn't nearly as shocked so much as I was, of course, I saw this in my 20s. And maybe he was 20, but people react to things different. But anyway, one thing that I did pick up on was that he was very uh, impressed with the musical score. That was one thing that kept standing out to him. He's like, I really, really dig this. I like the sound and how the use of the you know, music by Goblin and whatnot. He didn't know who they were, but he just knew the sound sounded really good. Um, I do think that people who judge these movies always are looking back at how dated the effects are for Argento's version versus you know the funny thing about Luca's version is that a lot of the shock moments really don't come until later in the film and even then I'm not even gonna say it's really the best uh in terms like I've seen the movie a couple times now but uh I've talked about before I didn't care for the ending because I felt like Luca was driving for something else that I thought was well, I felt like it got More a little unique. bit too involved, and it's because they were trying to, like, summarize three movies. Yeah, and, you know, that's fine, but, like, at the end, it just seemed like he was all of a sudden, he spent most of the movie trying to distance himself from Argento's version, and at the end, it's like, oh, I gotta put Argento's stuff in here. It's like, why bother? I mean, you can have the horror, but, because we saw with, like, uh, Chloe Grace Moritz, her character, mm-hmm. like, you know, she's kind of, like, all morphed and whatever. Uh, and then, of course, the girl that's, when they're using the dance, like, punish her in a way, which is so funny. Uh, rather than, like, Argento, where the witches were conjuring spells and using other means to take down their enemies, uh, this was, like, the dance, again, became their focal point of how they use their energy and use it against people they didn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, the other the cool- dance in the remake is kind of like the person dancing is drawing the power. The dance in the original 
is the coven is sucking the power from the dancers. Right. Does yep. that does that make sense? Yep, yep. Because we see that when they put him in the big room after the maggot scene, and uh, you know we got the uh, the master master uh, Marcus uh, who is in there. Who again we'll get into more of her later, but it seems like she's next to them in terms of trying to gather power. Or, mm-hmm. uh, I don't even know what you call it. It's almost like a spirituality that she uses to try to draw their essence. Uh, when they don't even know it. Yeah, it's almost like she's being a succubus. Right. Um, yeah, and so, like, I think you and I are kind of the same wavelength with Luca's version is that it's not a bad movie. Uh, it's unique, which is cool. I, I really like the dancing, I the main really dancing. I wish cool. it wasn't a Suspiria remake. Like, if they would have called it something else. Well, that's the only thing. Like, since he added all three movies, he could have called it anything. Mm-hmm. And I probably would have been a little bit more fine with it. I know that he was using the name, the drawing people who knew, who were familiar with the original. And that's what it's all about sometimes. But if he had just called it something else, even though it's all tied into the Suspiria trilogy, mm-hmm. since he did use the trilogy as far as his movie and everything, he probably could have called it something else and probably people would have accepted it more. Mm-hmm. Um, but the cool thing about Argento with this is that it did set the the standard really uh, for those type of films from like late seventies to probably early nineties. Uh, very few people could even replicate it in that way. In fact, even Argento really couldn't replicate. It. He did use Goblin a lot in the films that he used, like demons and stuff like that uh, that he was a part of. But ultimately. It, it never came to being as masterful as he did with Suspiria. And, uh, you know, some of the things that you brought up, like this other uh, article on com, which basically gives you six reasons why Suspiria is a masterpiece. One is what you brought up, which is color, and how they used the school as a cover to do this uh, without being noticed. or You know, even though we do have a historian in the movie who talks about the lore of, of Lorena Marcus and her founding the school, the academy, and, you know, her reputation mm-hmm. of being a witch, but there was never proven and all this other stuff. Uh, then we also, which we'll talk about our next event, about Jessica Harper, the actress who plays Susie Bannon. Uh, Argento talks about it a lot in the doc that we watched, which is a part of this nice little limited edition DVD that Neko got me uh, many years ago. Uh, knowing that I was a big fan of the movie. Uh, But one of the things that gets brought up about Harper is her look and how she portrays the character as innocent and everything else, uh, which is really good. Uh, Argento himself, of course, a master of uh, Italian uh, horror. We talked about the cinematography and Goblin soundtrack and you know, the, the effects, you know, to me, even though they're a little bit dated, uh, this is a problem with, even if you go back to Dawn of the Dead with Tom Savini, mm-hmm. you can tell some of that shit's, like, really dated. Like, it wasn't until the 80s when you see stuff like The Thing or The Fly and stuff like that where the effects got really, really good and really detailed to the point that you're like, oh, shit. I think the only thing, what did I say, the dog? Like, I'm like, that's a hand puppet. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing, but... You know, again, for me, like, I, you know, 
when I watch movies, I, I, I take those in consideration, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, I immerse myself into the story. So, I think I'd seen Suspiria for the first time on like the Sci-Fi Channel, maybe USA, during the mid-90s, when it was during Halloween month and whatnot, and I thought, I'd never seen it, like, I'm like, okay, I want to check it out. Dude, it, it hooked me from the word go. That first five-minute scene is, like, unreal. And then I remember the whole, uh, you know, tagline for the movie was, you know, uh, the only thing worse about the first five minutes of the movie is the last 15. You know, it's like, oh, it's got me, you know? <laughs> so, really, it, it is very violent. Uh, one of the things that people attack the movie about is uh, the violence against women, you know, obviously, but, you know... <laughs> but it's violence against women on women. Right. But there's also, you know, you're attacking a blind man and killing him, essentially. Right. Uh, and that's one of the things with the, the between the remake and the original is that in the original you had maybe a two or three male characters and they didn't have really big roles, but in the remake they were all female. And credit to Tilda Swinton who played three different roles. One of them was a man, so... Uh, credit to her for doing that as well. I did not know that initially going into the film until I read up on it. So uh, that was very impressive on that aspect of it. But I think there's no doubt that Argento Suspiria and the legacy of it is, you know, matched with guys like Hitchcock where he kind of set a tone. And it's it still resonates with people today, uh, despite some of the data effects and stuff like it. It just... Even if you go into this film not caring about the plot, simply watching it for the visuals and the sound is just, it's, it's, you can just literally turn on your TV, turn off the lights, lay back, and just listen. And you get a kick out of it because it's just so good. Well, it's also a product of its time. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not talking about. You can, you can really feel eras in movies because you start. You think of the old Hollywood, you know, you watch an old Hollywood movie, regardless of what the subject subject matter is, you can really see it. You watch an 80s movie, you can really see it. This was such a product of its time, and, you know, the 70s, I, I'll even go into, like, the mid-60s, because, you know, there's a lot of Hitchcock stuff then, too. Mm -hmm. Um very influential, very experimental, and, you know, a lot of people will credit Alfred Hitchcock for certain camera angles and figuring out how to make things look a certain way. The thing with Argento is he wasn't necessarily trying to recreate realism. He was trying to create his world, right? Like, it, it wasn't mm -hmm. like... I've read so many articles about Hitchcock where they're like, oh, well, Hitchcock has this angle that he shoots in this movie, and literally, it looks like the person is hanging, but he it's really just the guy holding his arm up like, like this, like I am. Right. And he's got, he's been very, you know, Hitchcock was the realism, he was trying to bring the suspense, make it feel even though these are fantastical stories like the birds and, and all of that, he wanted it to feel like it could really happen. 
Yeah. Argento wanted to take his point of view and be like, okay, this could be a comic book. Hmm. These these bright colors are in a comic book, or I'm what? I'm illustrating what's going on in my mind, almost like a, like I'm tripping. And oh, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't trying to make it be like, okay, we're if he was trying to make it realistic, he would have made these witches be like, um, again, puritanical times. Yeah, they'd be doing. It would be more plain. What he's trying to do is take it to the level of. I don't want to say fun because it's a it's a horror movie, but he's trying to take it to a more playful, more brightly well, it goes enchanting. Back, yeah, like it's, well, it it's goes, bringing it in, you know. It goes back to the fantasy aspect with like Alice in Wonderland and Snow White because that's how he wanted it to be. He wanted it to be surreal. And the last paragraph here on that uh, article at chasethecinema.com kind of like nails it for me. It says. The film reaches the viewer on a subconscious level because of the surreal images and the gore and violence that usually grosses out the viewer is no big deal because the gore is only there to serve the story. When, Subi dis when Susie discovers the secret quarters of the witch's coven inside the ballet school and accidentally discovers the queen witch, the audience is on edge of their seats when a dead corpse comes back to life trying to kill Susie. Argento brilliantly made the final scene more intense in a way he laid out the violence throughout the film, building up to the last climatic scene. And that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, I, I just do think that people have not seen this. They need to because it is an important film on many levels. Uh, some people will continue to tell you you need to view a different Argento film because they do like, different people like different films from Argento more than even this one. Uh, for me, this is like his unicorn. This is his best one for me uh, to this day. I think for me, too, because I didn't care for all of the other stuff that he had. I enjoy a lot of his other films, uh, some more than others, but the reality is, like, I don't know, this, this is the perfect film for me. Maybe it's because it is, like, the first Argento film I've ever seen uh, when I saw it, so... I didn't know much about him going up. Well, I should take that back because I do remember seeing Demons in the 80s. So by the time the nineties rolled around and this came out, I wrote but I didn't really know they were tied together as far as the director was mm -hmm. concerned. So uh, obviously I went back once I got this I ended up buying a couple of other uh Argento films, Opera and Deep Red and Tenebrae, uh when this when I found out so I started like You started building up your collection. Right, I started sucking all the knowledge up of Argento at that point, but even if the other films I liked, nothing beat this film on any level for me. All right. I know I talk too much. No, no, we're good. I want this to be detailed. And uh, in our next block of music, uh, stuff from Kobar PR against PR. And here's Six String PR giving us Varnock tickling the dragon's tail.
Everybody, this is Mr. Joshua Gray, your live gameplay DJ, live weekday mornings, every day, but hump day, playing Mortal Kombat or other games occasionally and featuring a number of different artists. So come on by, grab your breakfast, and enjoy some fatalities. Mr. Joshua Gray on YouTube, Monday, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, 8 noon to the moon. And you're listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko on Metal Tavern Radio. got another article here this time we're gonna talk about Jessica Harper lead actress in Suspiria the article's titled the first lady of Suspiria the creative curious career of Jessica Harper it's on the ringer.com and it's full of uh, interesting tidbits uh, which Nick and I were kind of just looking at just now we were just it was just very mind-blowing yeah so apparently Woody Allen had made a movie called Annie Hall yeah that's a very famous movie I've never seen it. But I've never seen it either, but it's a very famous movie. But, like, looking at the, some of the main characters, our main actors, and I'm really, really surprised. So you have Christopher Walken, Shelley Duvall, Jeff Goldblum, who I love a lot. Obviously, people caught on that, caught on to that. Sigourney Weaver. Weaver. Uh, mm -hmm. But apparently, Jessica had been offered a role in it and turned it down to do Suspiria. And, you know, one might say to themselves, why? And, and even uh, Jessica says that she's a big Woody Allen fan. She loved a lot of his movies. She did go to star in one of his later films uh, during that period. Uh, but she did pass on this particular movie. So one has to wonder why. And she makes a comment, you know, it wasn't an easy decision. I had a rebellious aspect to my personality back then. I like to think I still do. Uh... The other thing about it is she, uh, I think she said, yeah, so she appeared in uh, Love and Death, one of uh, Alan's uh, comedies later on, mm -hmm. and then uh, she says, I was very torn about it. I really wanted to nurture that professional relationship because I loved Woody's movies and felt it would be so great to work with him again, but I'm so proud to be associate, associated with Suspiria then and now. Being part of it has been kind of magical, and now here it is coming full circle with another experience she's talking in regards to the remake, because mm -hmm. she does make a cameo appearance in that as a... shouldn't even say cameo. She has actually a legit role in that, which was something that Luca talked about when he hired her. Uh, the only thing that I told you the other day was uh, he required her... He said, look, I'm going to give you a role in this, but I want your lines to be in German, because <laughs> that's the way that he went with it. Uh, so she immediately went to learn German to do her lines and whatnot, which I thought was pretty cool. That's pretty part. badass. Yeah. Um, what else we got in here? Uh, one of the things we talked about earlier was her character has this very innocent, uh, as they say, deer in the headlights look about her. This doe-eyed, yeah. yeah. And that's one of the things that Argento liked about her, because he had seen... Phantom of the Paradise and her character in that as well like one of the things that people talk about with her in that film is you see her and you don't really expect her to, to hear this voice singing the songs that she sings that they say she does really well well she was in Hair yeah. the, the musical that was super big back then and everybody's naked in Hair too so I mean <laughs> she's pretty got a nice body so and uh, you know she says 
uh, you know, she played Phoenix, an aspiring performer who was discovered by Paul Williams' nefarious, nefarious music mogul, and nearly ground up in a star-making machine. That's all from Fan of the Paradise. We connect with her because she's innocent with her own source of power, and she believes, uh, Jessica believes, it's the same with Suspiria with uh, Susie Bannon having that same inner power. Uh, but, again, here she goes. She goes, you're like... You're Snow White in that movie, sort of deer in the headlights. So, again, we're going mm -hmm. with this, like, mantra about how it's like a fantasy and uh, a dreamlike state that Suspiria gives the audience. Uh, but she says, but I feel both those characters have a really serious strength to them and power underneath their big eyes and helpless aspect. True. And we kind of get that a lot because it wasn't... When you watch Suspiria, we see two previous characters who... One being Sarah, one being the uh, the other girl at the beginning, who are sort of like, as you would call it, the troubled girls. Mm -hmm. They weren't following the rules, weren't doing, they were being too inquisitive. And Susie's character is a lot like that. She's, again, following these footsteps of her friends, or at least the one friend, Sarah, she didn't really know the girl at the beginning. But uh, that's what ends up happening. That's why it pisses off these witches so much, is that they're not going by the rules. You know, even for something simple when Susie's telling the headmistress, you know, I'd much rather stay with Olga because, you know, I don't want to... Yeah, we, we already got your shit, sorry. Well, yeah, they're like, you know, we have a room for you, and she's like, well, I'd rather stay with Olga, and then, like, the mistress is, like, kind of pissed off, but, again, I think that's why you and I are alluding to the fact that the witches themselves wanted all the girls there because that's how they drew their power. Uh, so not having them go by the rules or being outside of the place kind of put a nix in that kind of thing. Well, because if, if, if she wasn't physically there, they couldn't, again, suck their her essence <laughs> out of her. And, but then Susie was looked at more than a troublemaker. Like, at the end, remember, they're like, she must die. The American girl must die. Well, and that's... But that's how they saw troublemakers. They, anyone who was basically messing with their chemistry or messing with their mojo, like, their power must have been good enough. We're going to get into a lot because you and I were having this discussion the other night. But, you know, whenever they knew exactly the kind of shit that was going on outside of the, the, the academy, like, they knew, somehow they knew she was talking to people about witchcraft and, you know, keeping an eye on her and whatnot. Um, but the interesting thing about Jessica is her, she does have her family background is into like, you know, entertainment, like mm -hmm. singing, they had a background on that. Uh, you told me the sequel to Rocky Horror, Shock Treatment was bad. I didn't know she was in that. I gotta check it I don't out think just it's, for that. It's, people, it's, people, well, I should say people who Ray said the, the plot sucks, but the, the, the music is good. The music is very good. Um. It's mm -hmm. it's not that iconic Rocky Horror. Right. That's it, it's just kind of like the sequel to Saturday Night Fever is staying alive and it it's bad. It's bad. Right. But you would think it would be good. Shock treatment's just okay. Yeah, I, I just need to see it because like I am a fan of Jessica Harper's. Uh, I should be checking out more of her stuff. Like, but she really has a. Uh, as they say, if you go through a tour of her filmography, uh, she has mostly eclectic movie types. So, like, Fan of the Paradise, which, you know, you kind of forget about it. Even I forgot about it because 
again, I when we discussed it on our YouTube channel, uh, I had seen that as a kid. Like, I hadn't seen it since, uh, till recently. Uh, Neko fell asleep, but she was tired that day. Uh, but I think she will want to see it eventually. Um, but then there's other movies like Inserts, Love and Death. I haven't seen those, and but they're apparently kind of rare movies uh, that no one talks about. Uh, she got a more substantial role in Alan's love interest as Alan's love interest in 1980's Stardust Memories, which I haven't seen either. Um, of course, we talked about Shock Treatment. So, Shock Treatment, I think part of it is because it's not a direct, like, sequel sequel. It's, there are some characters from Rocky Horror that are in it, and she is supposed to be... Susan Sarandon's yeah, she character. Took over that so role. I think that's part of it is So rather than kinda of go with new characters, they try to continue mm-hmm. the same characters. And sometimes that changes people's perception. I get that because Sarandon was really good in Rocky Horror, so it's like, hmm. And of course at that time I'm sure when Shock Trick came out again, Harper wasn't that well known like Sarandon, so it's hard to Say, who the hell is this chick trying to be Sarandon's role? Sarandon wasn't super known back in 75, either. Not then, but, like, after, I'd say after Rocky Horror, she kind of started getting better roles and stronger roles. Well, Shock Treatment came out in, what, early 80s? Yeah, 81. So, And it's it's a little bit of a weird thing. It's almost like a Truman Show thing where, um, it's like they're in a game show. Mm Mm-hmm. It's nothing like Rocky Horror, but there is, it's a musical too, but it's just, it's not like when you, you think of what Rocky Horror was, it was, uh, like you said, like Phantom of Paradise, it's like a horror musical, but this is more like, it's just a, it's a little weird, you know, it's not as good. It was kind of funny because I, reading this little clip blurb in here, you know, uh, when she did the Phantom screen test, she actually was competing with Linda Ronstadt, who was actually a very good singer. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually beat her out. Now, I'm probably guessing Linda wasn't much of an actress. I think that's probably what hurt her in that particular thing. But it's kind of cool when you're someone like in Harper's position where you are, she can sing. You know, you know obviously, when you watch the movie, she can sing. So it's just kind of interesting that she would beat someone who was like a a bona fide musical artist mm-hmm. to get that. So, um, yeah, so, you know, when you're watching Suspiria, you know, Harper does such a great job with the character that, again, there's some sloppiness with the script, and, you know, this is mainly on Argento rather than her, uh, because in some ways they do try to portray Susie as a bit dumb in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like when she's asking the professor about witchcraft she's like well what do witches do like most people have common knowledge about what witches do uh so some of the inquisitive to she does a great job with the the you know her expressions and her the way she carries herself and her her looks when she's responding because we'll get into some of this here in a minute um but the script doesn't really help her sometimes, and that's part of the problem in there with that. But one thing that I learned uh, watching the doc on this is that 
when you're watching Suspiria and you're watching Jessica do this movie, and this is really incredible to me, she's interacting with actresses around her who aren't speaking English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, They're dubbing the other people in in English, but she's speaking in English, and somebody else might be speaking Italian, or, or somebody German, else right. might be speaking German. So you really, that's really kind of fascinating to me, and I wish one day I could actually interview Jessica about that, because I, I think... It doesn't matter how great of an actor you are, but if you have to sit there and do an entire movie where you're not understanding what the person's saying, and all you can do is react, like she probably knows they're going to speak to a certain amount of extent, and then she has to respond in a certain way, and so they, they read the script like, okay, this person's going to be saying this, which is written in English, I'm sure, so she knows what's going to Yeah, she's said. probably got the English script, and um, the girl who played Sarah got the Italian script. So, but... Man, I couldn't imagine trying to sit there and respond to someone who's not speaking English. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really fascinating to me. And the fact that Jessica was able to do that flawlessly in this film is amazing to me. I see that sometimes is going to be, like, just in the real world. Because I know so many people just from my, my line of work who, they know a little bit of several languages. But everybody kind of knows English because in order to work on our ships you have to know English 100% and be able to read and understand English but maybe speaking you kind of can get away with knowing a little bit less so I'll hear people one person might say something I don't know in uh, Spanish but then somebody else will respond but it's in English because that person doesn't speak Spanish very well, but they can respond in English because they know the other person understands English. It's it's crazy because it'll they'll be like, you know, somebody speaking in Spanish, and the person will respond, "Okay, I understand what you're saying. I need to go and uh, you know, do a report." But he'll say it in English, responding to somebody. It happens all the time. It's so crazy. Yeah, apparently she also appeared in uh, the last season of the Gary Shanley show. I used to watch that. What uh, show? The Gary Shanley show. In I the did 90s. too. Yeah. yeah. So apparently she played his wife in that. Uh, so I'll have to try to see if I can find any of those episodes. Like you found Seinfeld recently, mm-hmm. so you're kind of been going back with that. But she's apparently, you know, when you count, found a paradise, Suspiria, Stardust, Memory, Shock, to and Pains from Heaven. Those are what would be deemed as cult classics. So they asked the question, how could one actress be in so many cult classics? Well, she basically goes on to say, there's a huge accidental factor because, as you know, you're only getting offered what you're getting offered. There will be times when I would turn something down because I just thought it was too ordinary, not that interesting, which I find, again, fascinating with her because, you know, she gets offered any Hall role and chooses to turn that down in favor of Suspiria. So she went into Suspiria saying, wow, this sounds very interesting. But even when you watch her in the dock, she's like, yeah, there were times I just didn't know what Dario was trying to do until we saw it, like, on screen. Yeah, because she said that Dario was not the type to give a lot of notes. Right. He wanted, he picked you because he knew you and observed you. So he's, he's like, I have already picked you for this character because you are going to do what I want. Mm -hmm. So something would go on, like you're saying, 
they would shoot the scene and there would be no notes, there would be no um, direction. And she is like, good, bad, in between, I don't know. And then she would kind of see the whole thing come to fruition when they're watching, you know, the final edit and they're just kind of amazed. Right. And what's so funny is uh, she had like a little role in Minority Report with Tom Cruise. I didn't even realize that either. I, of course, I hadn't seen that film in ages, but... From then, it's been 16 years up until 2017's remake of Suspiria that she actually got uh, another role. Now, of course, that could be just because she might have stepped away from acting. You know, sometimes when the offers aren't coming in or whatever, or maybe she was just concentrating on life in general, uh, which happens as well. Uh, but she said, you know, she was hoping for a cameo, but uh, Gladadino offered a much more significant part of the final stretch of the film. Provided, of course, that she'd be willing to speak to dialogue entirely, entirely in German, which we talked about. She went and learned. Uh, so she was, like, eagerly trying to learn German for that because she wanted to be in it, which is so cool. Because, like, you know, she does love that film. The fact that she went in saying, look, you could just put my face in there as a cameo, I'd be happy. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, she gave her an actual role to work with, which is great. Um, things about her, which are very interesting over the years, she's a blogger. Uh, she also has a cookbook called the Krabby Cook Cookbook, um, which you and I were kind of like looking at. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. She's got recipes. Uh, <laughs> I think she has a, did make a tuna milk back in 96, but otherwise helpless. Uh, I guess that was like some sort of, I don't know if that was like a roll or something. I don't know. Uh, but she has different like recipes in there. Um. Yeah, she's. I just. I really find her fascinating as an actress, and I find her fascinating as a person. How that too? Because she. One thing she always points to, uh, I think it's in this interview as well, is that or this uh, article, is that her mind. She's almost like Emma Watson. She, her mind's always running. She's always wanting to do things and try things, and so she says she can't sit still, even at her age now, where. You know, she's a little older and stuff, so but she just constantly is looking for things to do, new things to do. And she's just fascinated with learning, which is very cool. What I find interesting, um, and it's, we as people experience this in our daily lives. Like, you take a job because it pays you money, and it, it looks good, but it's not fulfilling, Right. She refused to do that because she was, you know, protecting her, her art. You know, she wanted to be fulfilled as an actress. Yeah. And uh, more onto like her, you know, her looking for things to do. Uh, she does have a podcast and stuff, and she says, "I'm basically driven to be creative all the time. It's sort of like a condition I can't help. If I'm not doing a project of some kind, I get antsy." And uh, I believe that, like, you know, and I, again, we'll probably check out more of her stuff mm-hmm. down the road because that she is a very interesting actress and person. And uh, it's unfortunate I waited till now to really kind of dive into her past as far as, like, her films and stuff. But I'm very interested in that part of it because, you know, again, I remember the most from Suspiria. So it's like, <laughs> in some ways, I sit there and go, well, I don't need more Jessica Harper. I got it right where I want it, right in this movie. You know, so, but then, like, you start rediscovering stuff like Paradise, and, you know, I'm like, you know, she's in a lot of these other, like, supposed cult classics, mm-hmm. and I'm like, well, I need to check them out, just because really for her, we see 
you know, how, what her range is like and, you know, how she does. So, and she gets glowing reviews from people. So, you know, people that she's worked with. So that's what you want, really, uh, in terms of people that you uh, work with on films and TV and stuff. So, and sometimes you and I, we do it all the time. We see actors and actresses we like in smaller roles throughout these, like, it could be like an episode of Masters of Horror like Jason Priestley or, you know, some weird thing that you just like, oh, yeah, check it out. He's in this episode. Or, you know, we I think it took us a while to catch on to the Christina Hendricks TV show about being uh, counterfeiters. Oh, good girls. I, had, I also had uh, What's-Her-Face from uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower in there. I'm like, well, that's cool. I didn't know that. So, yeah, so... It's awesome when you can see stuff like so, like the Gary Shanley thing. Like, man, I gotta go back and look at that now because I don't remember her. You know, and of course I didn't watch every episode because it was kind of like something that would just come on every week as like you know as a schedule. Uh, so it's definitely something to check out. All right. All right. Back into our music. Uh, Metal Devastation Ray is gonna kick it off with some uh, Invoking Winds, and this is called Once Alive. Yeah, no. 
Crowe from Venus, a fresh metal band from Chile, and you are listening to Metal Paper Radio. Beyond the Gray, October Thorns, Jerry Cantrell, Neko's Pick of the Week. Brand new Mastodon kicking it off though with Sickle and Peace. I think they opened up for Fear Factory that night. Yes, it, it was, was in Towson somewhere. Was it yeah. was it the record theater? Yeah. Yeah, when it was still around. Well, it's gone now. I was gonna yeah. say it was just amazing. And we were like hanging out on the other side because if you guys don't kind of like understand the record theater used to be a uh, movie theater back in the day like a single movie house movie theater so it was nice and big and open and there would be a lot of really good shows that came through but there was like a door to the side and there were snacks and pool tables on the other side and that was called the rec room right so even if you weren't enjoying the concert because you would have to buy tickets to the concert if you were in the concert and you were wanted to go get away from it and chill out so like i remember like we saw mastodon shooting pool yeah. like it was it was pretty wild and yeah. he, maybe it's just a product of the time to just i was just discussing this with with someone at work i i remember um when we were younger, you wanted to see your friend, you'd go over to your friend's house and knock on the door. Even as a kid, you wanted to go hang out with your friend. It wasn't like we hang out on our phones all day and do TikTok videos and, and you know, FaceTime each other. You'd go over to your friend's house, you'd read you'd magazine. Walk your ass over yeah, there. walk your ass over to your friend's house in, in high school. Or drive if you had a car or whatever. Stay out till night at night, not worrying about people picking you up and snatching you. We we would, like, read magazines. CDs were big. Like, to buy a CD... Well, for us, it was cassettes. But think about how expensive <laughs> CDs were. Yeah. They were, like, $25 a piece. So it's, like, you could only buy, like, one CD at a time or a shirt. So it's, like, you had to decide. Do mm. I want a shirt this week or do I want a CD? My mom gave me some money. You'd sit, you'd listen to the CD front to back over and over and over again you'd read your magazines you'd hang out i feel like people are losing that kind of like connection because you at my previous job a lot of my work was done through uh zoom meetings it's very effective for some things but actual contact and face-to-face is a lot better mm -hmm. because there was somebody I worked with at my last job. Her name was Donna and she was our like Oracle whiz. If something was wrong, anything was wrong, anything like it related. It, and I would try, I, I never wanted to bother her. I never wanted to just go on zoom and, and email her or whatever and say, I'm having a problem. 
But I'm stupid because I should have just said, Donna, I have a problem. Because she fixed it in like 35 seconds. I only saw her face to face one time the entire time I worked there. And we had a very good working relationship because we would help each other out with different things. I mean, I wish... I mean, I'm sure the pandemic has a lot to do with this on top of our ability, but it does make a difference. Like, I have a stronger connection with people that I've worked with for three months on a ship than I do with people that I worked with for months on end and never met them because we did Zoom meetings. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> does that, I, I'm, am I sounding crazy? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, I'm just making sure I'm not like completely losing my mind. No. So from their new album, Hushed and Grim, here's Mastodon and we'll be back.
It's like a nail in the coffin, rain on the parade. You're getting nothing when you've already paid. Spend a lifetime giving and you get nothing back. It's like you're slowly dying from a mindfuck heart attack. And Some Beyond the Gray there with Fight or Flight. It's DJ Nubis. And DJ Neko. We're with you. And now we're ready for Neko's Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick of the Week. Pick, pick, pick. Pick of the Week. So this week, I, um, honestly, 
sometimes my picks have these great deep meanings and sometimes they're just very superficial but this week it is kind of a superficial it's just a song that I really dig but this song by this band I'm so like vague but this version of the song it is a traditional-ish song it was first collected in Appalachia in the 1930s, but it kind of has its roots in a traditional English song because the band that recorded it and got the most notoriety for the song was a band from the UK. And this song charted number one in the UK and number one in the US. There have been tons of versions of this. The version I'm going to be recommending is from the 60s. And what I find absolutely amazing is it's almost like it was a poem that turned into a song. Um, and a lot of people, they kind of, because the song's origins are like the 1920s, 1930s, they, people start to really put some, I don't want to say emphasis, but like th there have been a lot of people who want to find this house mm -hmm. because they feel like it, it is a story that's being told through kind of like a poem or like a folk tale or something and there's been so many different versions of this song and you I'm talking like again going back to the 30s where the song has been you know recorded this one I believe is or excuse me, the tw the 20s that the song has been recorded. Mm -hmm. This, I feel, is my favorite version, but I also feel like it's the most famous. And the animals, this was all during the British invasion, right? And this is the biggest British invasion hit that's not the Beatles. That's pretty impressive. So, Platinum in the UK, platinum in the US. They basically kind of took this song that was, again, you know, there is a house in New Orleans they call the Rising Sun where the poor boys to destruction has gone and me, oh God, are one. So you hear it, again, kind of as a folk tale, as a poem. This song, though, there's a couple of theories. One, it's a brothel two it's a prison but nobody's really sure where like the song comes from right like it's not like the animals wrote it this is a song that's out right? there yeah. it's a song like mary had a little lamb this is a, a song that has been out there they say it has roots in appalachia they say it has roots in england with you know english folk tales there have been so many recordings of it there is nobody who has claimed to be the you know writer of oh, this wow. song this song itself, though, the arrangement is very different than all the other arrangements. So when this came out, it is so 60s. It's got the organ. It's got, like, the flair. There is also a psychedelic version. Um, yeah, I was watching the video. Oh, you silly. saw the psychedelic? Okay. So the Animals version is probably the most famous. And they were on tour with Chuck Berry. And they chose this song because they wanted something distinctive. And they wanted to, to like, kind of stand out so you look at pictures of the animals before this song and they're very like clean cut with their sweaters and their ties 
And this song kind of put them more cooler. So they kind of like they kind of like loosened up yeah. a little bit. They're now not they're wearing sweaters. Yeah, now <laughs> they're like they're still wearing their their shirts and their their. But it's not like I'm looking at this picture and they got the slick back. They kind of like messed up their hair a little bit. They still and the the vocals are really good. The song was recorded in one take. Oh wow! One take. There is no like layering. There is. They sang it. They said that's it. I'm said done. The words. I said the words. And um, afterwards, though, the organ part was played by Alan Price, and that was kind of like what completed the sound. And they were looking for something that would really grab people's attention, which clearly I've heard. It this. does. It does. The original song in the U.S. was under three minutes, but in the U.K., when they released it, it was four minutes and 29 seconds because they had a little bit of, like, you know... You know, they jammed a little bit. Spiced it up. But what, again, it has been... It charted, again, up to number 25 on the top 100s when they released The Best of the Animals. So it was number one, and then it was number 25 almost 10 years later. So it's it's really interesting, too, because they took a song, again, that is a folky song, a poem. They changed it a lot different than the way it's been done before, and they played it in a different time signature than anybody else did, and then they threw in, like, that 60s-slash-70s organ that we hear, like, a lot with the doors. Mm-hmm. So... I just picked this song, honestly, because I lo- I loved it, but you said to me, you know, why do you love it? And I'm like, let me dive, let me dive deep. Not more now. I let haven't me heard figure this out. in a long time, so that's what's cool is that, you know, you're wanting to play a song that I, I was familiar with, but didn't remember mm-hmm. about, so that's cool. So I was telling you what, off air, I was like, there's a lot of cool information about this song, and this band themselves are the one they may not have written it but they're the ones who kind of owned it yeah so uh, i'll give you another example like you always think about uh i will always love you is a is whitney houston's song we know it's dolly parton's song just because i love the best little whorehouse in texas and you do too (laughs) and um but dolly is like Whitney's song, I'm cool with it because I still get paid every time she sings it. But I get residuals. If you would talk to somebody else a little bit younger than us who have never seen The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, you know, Whitney took the song and turned it into, like, a pop R&B phenom. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just, like, a song that was written for a musical. It was turned into this giant... And that's what the animals did with this. They, it wasn't just this little folky song. It was a song that they took and expanded on so much that it took on a life of its own. So this week, after I've given you my extensive research on this song, you're going to tantalize your ears with the song The House of the Rising Sun by The Animals. Attention please. Be prepared for a musical transformation that you've never felt before.
In a moment, we will bring you on a journey like there's no tomorrow, and we will break new ground. Hailing from the land below the wind. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ladies and gentlemen, DJ Neko's pick of the week.
Looking for a place to take care of all your automotive needs? Then get in touch with Stauffer's Auto Service in Millersville, Maryland. Stauffer's takes care of all auto repairs, auto service, and great quality parts as well. Stauffer's is located at 8328 Veterans Highway, Suite E in Millersville. Be sure to call and check out all their service specials related to your automotive needs. Stauffer's is professional, friendly, and has highly qualified mechanics to do excellent work with prices that are fair and much better than what you will find at other automotive places. So call 410-729-0121. That's 410-729-0121. And tell them the newsman and his trusty sidekick, Neko, sent you Closing out the rock block is brand new stuff from Death SS, Suspiria, Queen of the Dam. So, so, now we're going to talk a little bit about the legacy of Suspiria. Okay. And really, it's funny because by the time Suspiria came out in 77, uh, the audiences weren't really so much shocked anymore, but essentially by like violence and, you know, gore and stuff because you had stuff like The Exorcist, Clockwork Orange. Dawn of the Day, which came out a year after Suspiria, you know, uh, Chainsaw Massacre, th these films were already kind of like opening up that door mm -hmm. to shock and everything else. That's basically what the 70s was before the 80s kind of took right? over. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's just interesting about this movie in general that we've talked about earlier is how Argento spent most of his movies up to this uh, doing gallo films where it was more about murder mysteries a la Hitchcock where you have uh, mystery trying to figure out who the killer is and all this. And then and this also, was like his breakaway. Yeah, he decided to add some supernatural elements to this uh, for Suspiria and it changed his game a little bit. But his wife was also his partner mm -hmm. and she totally, yeah. yeah, she totally was just really feeling this vibe, this story. She was over and over kept she kept saying she was like dreaming about it and they they worked they got the writing i mean dario is the director but you know you had that that little seedling of information that just grew and grew and grew and that is what turned into what suspiria suspiria god i can't talk <laughs> um turn into because it, what was it before there's no other st i mean i'm probably exaggerating but there's no other story quite like this you know there's a lot of um a lot of an homage to a fairy tale but it's not this is a new idea so having his wife write the idea write the story get the screenplay going and instead of him and she wanted the fairy tales. She wanted the bright colors. She wanted to get away from the, like, suspense. And I think this is, like you, it's, like, the best work. It's it's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, a gentleman by the name of Keith Phipps uh, said when it comes to, like, you know nostalgia we dredge up yesterday's ghosts at our own peril usually they're best left alone and that's sort of like a a nod to what Argento was saying about mm -hmm. you know if you're gonna redo a movie 
make it your own, but if you're going to redo it, just call it something else. And we, I get it when it comes to like people or directors who want to pay homage to movies they grew up with. Like I don't like from what I remember, Luca was never an actual fan of Argento's original work. Like I don't even know why the guy took on the project. Again, he did an adam. Uh, an admirable job of it but it never made sense to me that someone would go and try to make a movie they was never a fan of to begin with and you know usually when you hear about directors like when we um, I can't remember his name he did the Green Inferno and he was on Joe Bob last year. On oh 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 shit I can't think of his name either. Yeah uh, but he does a lot of horror films but he's a big fan of the genre so when he does like Green Inferno which pays homage to Cannibal Holocaust uh-huh. it makes sense uh, because he has like a dire interest in that type of stuff um, here it is Luca is doing a remake calling it Suspiria and he's combining all three movies into the trilogy which is fine but then rather than you know for a guy who doesn't really like the original why even bother calling it Suspiria call it something else Make it your own. That's what we have been saying since the beginning of this podcast and prior to that. But uh, even with all that, even with like the original ideas that Luca brought, it still doesn't really overdo what Argento created. It doesn't replace it as like a better movie. Some people argue it does. You and I obviously disagree with that fact. Uh, the only thing, really, in my opinion, that the new one did was just make it more pretentious and... Uh, and that's fine Ooh, to a degree. I like how you put that. Like, it's trying to be, like, better than the old... Oh, like, we're way better. We're, like, the popular girls better than the older one. Right. You know, the, the director's direction on it was just... He was trying to out-showcase it. But then, like I said, it made no sense for a couple of reasons. Because, one, he wasn't a fan of the original. Didn't even like it, from what I understand, if I read it right. Then... To go and do the movie, and only to use the ending, which sort of pays a nod homage homage to the fucking mm-hmm. original with all the gore and shit, made no sense either. Like it's like almost like he wasn't even trusting his own work. Like he was doing all this other shit, which was kind of cool, but then at the end he said, "Fuck it, we're gonna do what Argento did <laughs> and get crazy with it." Because I feel like you, it was like he just wanted to blow his load at the end. He right. Couldn't, he couldn't just stay true to him, himself. He just wanted to be like. Poof. Yeah, he felt like he was gonna try to be shocking, but it was never really shocking in the sense that if you've seen the original, you weren't you were already expecting something, and but he couldn't trust his own work just to stick with what he was already setting out to begin with. It's it's interesting too because like. When I look at the, the, I'll call it a re-release. I don't even want to call it a remake. The reimagining. I keep going back to, it's such a different atmosphere. It's not the same movie. And Argento himself even said, just call it a different name. Yeah. Like, don't call it Suspiria. Just. That was the other part. Like, if you really didn't care about it, but you liked whatever the stories brought, why use Suspiria as a name? This is almost, to me, akin to Metallica not changing their name when they changed their entire sound entirely. It's like the band couldn't trust for them just to start as a new rock band under a different name 
instead wanted to capitalize on their former glory as Metallica. And they're so different from 87 to, like, 96. Right. Like, 87 Metallica is not the same as 96 Metallica. I mean, we'll even say, like, 92 was kind of like the... Like, that was where it happened. I, I feel like the Black Album is where it happened. And the Black Album should have been, like, the last Metallica album, and then maybe they were, like... Yeah, Whatever. Yeah, Luca could have easily just said, look, my film is based off of Suspiria in the trilogy, but I'm not going to call it that. I'm going to call it something else. And this is my vision of that particular, using that particular type of work. And he would have been fine with that. I would have been fine with that. Because uh, then it would have been really his own. But it's almost like, at first he's like, fuck Dario Gento's version. Forget, fuck that piece of trash, Superior original. But then I'm gonna use the same name to be uh-huh. in my film. <laughs> so it's Cause like because because he was trying to be like I'm making a more real. This is this is the gritty real version, and this is this is quotes I was reading. I right. read so many articles this last week preparing for this podcast because I always joke. I mean, there are so many things that I love. I love dance. I love horror. I love mental illness. You know, when you give me all of that in a movie, it's it's a 10 out of 10. And that's what these are. You've got horror, you got a little mental illness, you got a little dance thrown in there. And the more that I read about this, you can see, like, Dario was not really into the idea of the remake. He's like, if you're going to do something, either do it exactly the same, but then it's not a remake, it's a copy. Or call it something different. And then Luca was like, I'm making the realist. He kept saying realist in all of these are. It's the realist, the realism, where we're getting gritty. This is Germany in the 70s. And I'm like, I, I understand both sides of the coin. Huh? I do. Because Suspiria 77 is a psychedelic fairy tale. Suspiria, what was it, 2018, 17? Suspiria 2017 is, like you said, a pretentious douchebag who thinks they know better than Dario Argento, and he is really trying to be like, this is what it should have been, and Dario Argento doesn't know what he's doing. That's what I think. I'm having an epiphany. Like, I really (laughs) feel like that's what Luca did. He's like... This is what it should have been, but you just went and like blew your load on some crazy fairy tale. You know what Dario Gento did? He revolutionized some of these insane film shots and filters, which to us, you know, we have a thousand filters on our phone and we can have like puppy dog face and and, and little hearts and shit just doing a selfie. In the 70s, this was live film. You had to develop the film. You had to shoot it a certain way. You had to use a certain speed of film. You had to... The filters, remember that Mm -hmm. from the doc? Yeah, that was very enlightening because the guy that worked with Dara, who's responsible for all the colors, he actually came to Dara and said, well, this is what I can do. And Dara's like, we got to do that. We got to do this. I like this. So as they were describing when they're shooting, and this is something Neko pointed out while we were watching this, is that they're shooting these scenes, and 
in order to get him to work right, he actually had to install these filters as they're shooting. So whether it be like blue colors or red or green, he's doing this by hand. This isn't CGI. This isn't like anything else. This it's, is not like a computer. He right. had to use, when we say filters, literal filters that go onto the camera. Yep. And then you have to edit it in a certain way so you don't fuck it up. Mm -hmm. And you have to cr have the correct lighting. So that's why a lot of times when you see these colors, the only reason I know this is because I'm old. And because when I was in high school, I, I was in a school for performing and visual arts and I took photography. And I learned how to do photography the old fashioned way. So the filters, quote unquote, that we used were either on our lenses or when we're developing the pictures. Same thing with actual movies because you used to have to develop that film too. You develop the film, you either are using specific filters when you're printing the film or when you're shooting the film you have actual filters on the lens. Nowadays, if you want to do solarization, if you want to do like black and white but then there's oh like a hint of red or whatever, you can do it through a computer and I have no qualms about it. I think it's amazing that you can create software that can help you like that and help you get your vision across, but this is 77 and it was not available. Everything, when they say the cutting room floor, it was literal, you're cutting the film and the film is going on the floor. The editing was seam seamless. The filters were beautiful. I just, that's something I think a lot of younger people don't actually, um, they don't fully appreciate with Argento, Hitchcock, like a lot of these older directors, when they want to get like a certain thing done, there are no computers. They have to get creative. So how do we do this? They did it manually. Mm -hmm. And it took a lot of hard work, and I'm not saying that editing digitally isn't hard work, I'm just saying you don't know how it's going to turn out until you develop that film. And you may not have time to reshoot, or yeah. funds to reshoot, so if it's going to have the blue Which filter... Which we can all guarantee that Luca probably had a much bigger budget mm -hmm. to work with than Dario ever did. So when you start trying to say, like, oh yeah, well this is the way it should be done... Well, the reality is you're fortunate enough to have that kind of uh, budget to work with because uh, Dario had to do it the hard way uh, when there was almost no budget. Even though he was making money, obviously, off of his previous films, it's nothing like we see today in terms of how much money you're actually getting uh, to work on movies. Especially in Italy. It's not like it just money drops real big over there. So during that time, it was probably even less. Nevertheless... Uh, we go back more and more to the whole like fairy tale thing and I didn't really think about this too much but the way it was described in another article off the ringer.com is that uh, Susie Bannon's character when she first arrives from Munich airport you know she's in the taxi and it's almost as, she, as they're going through the forest it's like the black forest on mm -hmm. her way to this enchanted castle which is basically the academy itself um, and of course, the evil queen would be uh, Tanz's imperious director, uh, the lead one. We'll get to that more in our next segment. But uh, in contrast to Musker 70s horror classes like The Exorcist or Halloween, 
Suspiria's greatness does not derive from the conventional satisfactions of narrative setup and payoff, nor does it offer much in the way of characterization. If Susie makes for a sympathetic heroine, it's more to do with Harper's beauty as a camera subject and the alienating effect of her European co-star's dialogue being mostly dubbed than any kind of bravura acting. Uh, La Mia Farrow in Rosemary's Baby. So, again, like, when you talk about the legacy of this, you have to almost dive deeper like you just did with mm -hmm. the color uh, used in the cameras to Harper's ability to make the dialogue work listening to women speak in other languages like that this is the first I'd ever heard of that and I've been in love with this movie for years uh, I think Nick was a little surprised when we were watching the movie and, I, and I'm pulling out the the DVD she gave me I hadn't sat there. I, I did listen to the Goblin soundtrack, which came with it, which is wonderful. Uh, this thing's like a book almost, and it had like some still cards for the still shots in there. Cool still. I, I think you should bring them down here and hang them up, honestly. And there were uh, like a book that was an interview with the, the characters inside that. But then also it has the doc, the hour-long doc, which I had never sat down with. And so that was very enlightening to check that out with her uh, the other night. But that's the thing. It's like so much of this movie and its legacy outweighs anything that's even the remake has been done. Like people who are younger that don't really appreciate that aspect of it. And unfortunately, that's how it is sometimes. I, I'm kind of being elitist there when I say that because it, it's almost like when people. It's, it's not elitist. It's just they're they're not really exposed to it. So they don't fully understand what it takes mm -hmm. to do something because like we have I feel like our age you're 50 I'm 40 we have had the privilege of, of growing up where there was no no nothing there was no help there was we had Betamax we had VHS but we got to see the birth of all this new technology and see how wonderful it can be People who are 20 years younger than us, they don't understand what analog technology is. And I think it's not that it's an elitist thing, it's a, they don't, they, they have no idea. Because we developed film. When we went out, we had a camera and hung out with our friends or went to prom, we had a camera, we took snapshots, and we dropped it off well, over at the Photomax. Well, when I say least, it's not so much that like, I think that I'm better than them, but for instance, uh, I'm not a huge black and white horror guy. Like There are people like Rob Zombie and some of these other guys that grew up with a lot of that. Aaron Penn is a big fan of stuff like that. But I, I see you enjoying certain black and white movies, even some that I've pulled well, out. Well, similar ones like well, like Black Sabbath or, you know, just, or what is it, Sunday Black, I don't know, I forget the name of it. Um, there are certain ones, like I said, the difference is I don't disregard the black and white horror because that was the beginning. The Frankensteins, the Draculas, all that started a lot of what we got today. But when people talk about the 70s and stuff like Suspiria, they're like, that's just garbage. Like, all the way down, whether or not it's the violence or... Uh, the way they're shot because like you know they're not like i don't know like freddy versus jason they're not clean or new suspiria so there's a difference in attitude with people who look back today on stuff from the 70s and 80s as there were from people from the 70s like us with the older films in the 60s and 50s 
So that's what I mean when I say it's, it's not me trying to be elitist. It's just that I hate that people disregard movies in the 70s, 80s so easily when, yes, I realize you were too young or not even born to witness this stuff firsthand, but now there are a good handful of people these days that love those films. We, we talk to them all the time. Right. There's a lot of them that are out there, but uh, most of those that I've seen that, that love the remake over the original Suspiria aren't like that. They're almost... I hate to put it this way, they're almost like Radiohead fans, you know, when they just they think, oh, it's just this and nothing mm-hmm. else. Like, you can't have anything else. And, uh, yeah, that's the only way I can really put it, but it doesn't make any sense to me because even if you like the remake better than the original, there has to be some sort of appreciation for what that original did. And that's really what the legacy of Suspiria means uh, to horror in general and filmmaking. And that's why it's important to dive deeper into just what you're seeing as a movie. Like, you learn more and more about how these movies are made. And, like, again, we watch stuff on Carpenter's The Thing or uh, The Fly when we were discussing that Versus episode. Like, you learn so much about what it took to do the special effects. And Dawn of the Dead, same thing, just... So much goes into it that no one really appreciates. And then they look back and they're like, yeah, but look how cheesy the zombies look. You don't get it, though. It's beyond that. You have to look beyond that um, and what it meant at that time. It's easier these days to do a remake like Dawn of the Dead when you have CGI to work with and better special effects And you can do things in post. Right. Like, for me, The Fly, I had... I knew I saw it once when I was younger, and I never went back to it because there was something inside of me that was like, ew, no, ew, no. Mm -hmm. So, when we watched it again for Versus, this is a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, I haven't seen The Fly since I was a kid, and I watched it, and it had such an impact on me, and this is a movie... Again, that was made in the early 80s that I was still able to connect with, and it's a 40-year-old movie. Mm-hmm. So I I really hope that younger people, they will visit some of these movies. They'll visit Suspirio. They'll visit The Fly. They'll visit these originals and say to themselves, okay, like Suspiria, there's, there's a couple of very cheesy effects that I, I joke with Anubis about all the time. I'm like, that's a hand puppet. That is really cheesy. But when you um, when you look at the effects that they're going for, and then when you find out, like, in order to make all of that hallway red, they had to use red gels. And in order to get that scene in that square, and that square is where Hitler actually had delivered speeches mm-hmm. and they had to do that one like spotlight on on that um the pianist with his dog mm-hmm. and how hard it was to light it you know what they do now they be like oh okay we can fix that in post there is no post <laughs> it's film so yeah. it's like there there's only so and and i know this again because i've worked with literal film photography there's only so many different filters you can put on to an enlarger to take your negatives 
and turn them into pictures. So if your negative fucking is fuzzy, or if your negative sucks, or if you're shooting something and you don't have the right filter on your lens, and you go to, there's no editing in post, what would they do? They're in editing, can they call everybody else back and try to be like, oh, I have a great idea. We're gonna reshoot this entire, it doesn't work like that. It just doesn't, and they wouldn't do it now either. So to be able to get it done the first time is kind of amazing because they don't know what the final outcome is going to be. That is Dario, that, it, that is his cameraman, that is his lighting director, that is his color director, that is all of them coming together and saying, from my knowledge, this is how I envision this. And now maybe, maybe this is a little crazy, maybe we're going a little hard on the blue gels and the red gels, but if we do that now, when we finally print it, it's gonna look great. Yeah, one thing that we've noticed with modern day horror is that, and Nick and I constantly criticize this, you know, we, we, we want, there's films of modern age we like, but for instance, the prequel for the thing that they did in 2011, storyline was decent, good acting. The problem is CGI was what they relied on for all the special effects, and if you're going to cheap out on that, why bother doing it? Because if you're a fan of the original and you're trying to make a, a sequel or a prequel in this case to that particular film why not go with practical effects special effects we have we have people that do that still <laughs> you know put them to use uh whether or not you think it's a waste of time or budget it's worth it in the end when you want to get people in the seats i'm going to go back to the thing that i always talk about with practical effects and I don't know if we said it on this podcast or if we were talking about it on Versus or whatever. We watched that show where people were doing practical effects versus um, the CGI effects. And it was a spider doing its web. And this girl had this great idea where she's like, we take glue sticks and we heat it up, but then we have like a leaf blower or something. It'll look and it it looked just like a spider web. Better than somebody creating the CGI of the spider web. And sometimes practical effects are, I mean, it may take a little bit more work, but we've seen how some CGI. And a lot of the movies that we like, practical and special effects pays off hugely. It, it's like if you use the CGI um, strategically, Instead of it being like, oh yeah, what blade was it that I'm like they just CGI the entire end of blade? Or there was something else that we recently watched that was like the backwards head thing, and I'm like they just CGI the entire like, it's like they got lazy and just CGI like all the fight scenes. Right, and you know the thing is like, as much criticism as King of the Monsters gets, CGI was used very well there same mm -hmm. with same through all the godzilla the king movies, kong the legendary mm -hmm. stuff but then like it was it was clash made. of the titans remake it was abysmal like you just you couldn't you, they, they got lazy again it was like you could have cut some corners with cgi but then when you use it for everything that you're doing and it just looks so cheap and terrible and 
so what what really got us with Godzilla, the first legendary Godzilla, we're just waiting with bated breath and we're watching these trailers and the clearly you're going to do it CGI because you cannot because they made him gigantic. They made him what he was supposed to be, but they made it believable because Godzilla is coming out of the fucking sea and it would be a tsunami. Like, mm-hmm. when they, I I just, like, my heart went into my throat. I'm like, they did it right. He looks like a giant lizard being thing. Everything that, so, yes, CGI is fantastic. They're, Not only that, but, you know, one of our favorite scenes from 2014 is when Godzilla lights his tail for the mm, first time. And they did and it. The minute it happened, you and I looked at we each other. We grabbed each other's hands and went, <gasps> We were probably the most excited we've ever seen. We're like, here it comes. You know, so it's like, they you were able to do it when you use it right. Um, people will complain always about the darkness, but they kind of changed that in GV for, G versus K. But even with King of the Monsters in 2014, it works. It, it still works. Dude, there's, a, there's a moment at the Mothra end. Mothra yeah. looks like a giant fucking moth and like a larva. Like yeah. it's, it's beautiful. Uh, but this article has a, a paragraph at the end that really sums up everything for me on the legacy of Suspiria. It says, In the finales of The Exorcist or Halloween, we're meant to be shaken up by the possibility that the forces of darkness are still lurking in every stairwell and behind every bolted door. But in the end, Suspiria doesn't aim for that kind of eerie effect. When it's over, it's over. With Susie slightly worse for wear but wiser about the world, like any good fairy tale survivor escaping into the same pitch black night that background her arrival, that that backgrounded her arrival. What lingers is not a sense of evil, but a exhilaration in how far Argento and his fellow filmmakers were willing to go to shock and delight. The movie's sheer exuberance is the cinematic equivalent of a blood transfusion. That's. It's very cleverly put. Yes. And I really believe that the legacy of this movie, which has already lived on very long now, will keep going on living long because it's just a fine piece of cinematic work. So we'll be getting to our retro DVD movie vault soon, which we'll be discussing the movie about the plot itself and everything here shortly. But we're going to go back into another block of music. Kicking off with some brand new stuff by Ad Infinium, and this is called Unstoppable. Nothing can stop the fire in the heart 
Hey, DJ Anubis here, and I want to say if you dig all things Godzilla and KG related, then check out the YouTube channel of the Sci-Fi Century. He has great reviews, opinions, and theories in the world of sci-fi horror, anime, and of course everyone's favorite comic reading lizard, Godzilla. Century provides great commentary when both having a special guest on his shows as well as the collaborations with the big teddy bear, that fat samurai guy. So if you want to keep it raw, real, tune into the Sci-Fi Century. That's S-C-I-F-I-S-E-N-T-R-Y. Sci-Fi Century. Tune in to get the best in science fiction and Godzilla-related information. Peace. This is the Retro Movie Vault with your hosts DJ Anubis and DJ Neko only on Metal Tavern Radio. You haven't heard anybody say anything about either one of these. Well, what about these two? They suck. These are the same two movies? You weren't paying any attention. No, I wasn't. I don't think your manager would appreciate it. I appreciate your ruse, ma'am. I beg your pardon? Your ruse, your cunning attempt to trick me. So need a bathroom. You know what? That I might do the bathroom down here before I do the kitchen. <laughs> like that's almost my my next like wavelength. My my. But again, with kitchen, I open my mouth and say, I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna pick. You just slap that slap that word right at. You're not gonna paint. You're not gonna do the floor because. Nope. This nope. Is, nope. This is and what happened no. with the bathroom. Oh no! I bought a brand new sink, and our old sink fell apart. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put the new floor in, and then I'm just gonna put the sink in, and and and. and then I'm just gonna paint it, which is still not painted yet. Well, we're not even talking about that. We're talking about all the problems. Like, if I would have just hired a contractor, it would have been done in three days. But because I, I decided I was gonna handle everything myself, that we've hit every single problem you could. We had to have professionals fix the floor, fix the toilet flange, fix our supply valves, fix our tub. Now we're down to the nitty gritty, which is like finalizing simple things like painting and trim work. And I'm like so bored that I, I'm over it now because it's been one over it. I'm over it. So the joke is if I ever say to Anubis, oh, how about I just paint the, no, no. A lot of no. How about I just put a new floor? No. Because every we thought that this bathroom was gonna take us one day because I'm like, ah, oh, we already have the sink. It's just gonna take like no time at all. 
everything blew up in our face. So anyway, I kind of agree with you though. I really feel like if we could get somebody to organize the space back there, we could totally have a bathroom down here. All right, so getting into our movie, which by now, if you've been listening, we've talked a lot about, mainly detail about the various... If you didn't know, it's Suspiria 1977. Oh! In her Jim Carrey Nerds. voice. <laughs> uh, the cast for this, and we'll stick with those that are mainstays in the film, Jessica Harper, who we talked about playing Susie Bannon, uh, Stefiana Cassina as Sarah, Miguel Bose as Mark, Barbara Magnolfi as Olga. Uh, Eva Axon as Pat Hingle. Udo Kier, mm -hmm. legend, Meister, Dr. Frank Mandel. And two other big mainstays, uh, Alita Valley as Miss Tanner. And Joan Bennett as Madame Blanc. So those are your main, main characters in this film. Uh, now, Eva... She's gone very early in this film, but her scene is the one that just hits home right away. She's the victim, first victim that we see. Uh, the whole premise of this is Harper's playing Susie Bannon, a dance student from America who's come to, is it Germany? Is that what's her? Yeah. Coming to Germany uh, to a dance school. And as she arrives, we've discussed how she gets in a taxi from the airport, which again, we're describing when she's getting out of the airport like it seems all calm and collected and, yes, and boom she yeah. goes out the, the the doors the opening the power doors and it's a thunderstorm and it's crazy and the wind's blowing and she's literally getting drenched there waiting for a taxi she has to literally step out in front of the road and try to wave it down just to get it so as she's driving to the academy, of course, they're going through which is very dark wooded areas almost like I would be when I'm delivering fucking out to some of these places that I go to. He told me one time he was delivering and it was so dark that he had to get out of his car to look at the light, the um, number on the house because he was not sure. It was like farm country. So uh -huh. the GPS is like, you have arrived. And he gets out and he's like, this shit's creepy, dude. Are you sure I've arrived? And he walked up to the front porch and turned on his flashlight, and he's like, yeah, okay, you you that's what it says. Yeah, you don't want to be, like, flashing it too crazy. You think there's someone trying to break in her house, so you have to be careful with that kind of stuff. And because he works for Amazon, they make you deliver until you're done, and, mm -hmm. you know, we're getting ready to hit the busy season, and, and Prime Week yeah, was, like, two months ago. Yeah, almost seven. I'm sure it's dark outside already. Yeah, it's dark. And remember, I think this was last this was last season, like last Christmas season that this happened to you. And you're like, I'm not trying to scare these people, but you know, we are told we deliver until we're done and some nights he wasn't home until eleven o'clock at night because they're they're like you deliver until you're done. But the cutoff is stop deliveries ten. Yeah, something because like that. Because of, on of, when you of start. DOT like right, regulations. regulations, but He'd be out there, and he's like, eh, what's up, people? Yeah, oh, it's a little creepy. Is there, is there anybody with a bunch of chainsaws going to hack me <laughs> up? I don't know. Oh, there's a big dog going to bite me. Anyhow, uh, Banner's character finally gets to school, and this is when she crosses path with Pat Hingle, who's playing Eva, who's coming out of the school. 
And she's basically looks like she's talking in the wind to nobody. Like it, we don't even know at that particular point who she's referring to. But and with the storm and the noise, it's hard to hear everything she's saying. But the cool thing about it is, uh, Susie Bannon starts to recall some of the conversations that she overheard later in the film, which you know uh, gets explained in some ways to what we're dealing with. But they pass each other. Uh, Eva runs away from there. She's actually running through this forest area to who knows where. Like, we know she gets to some apartment buildings or whatever. It was uh, a friend of hers, I believe. Right. And Susie, at first attempting to try to get in, there, someone on the other intercom is telling her to go away. She, they don't know who she is. So Susie. It's, like, so fucked up at the beginning. It's, like, so much chaos. Right, so... Uh, Susie gets back in taxi, and I'm assuming she goes to her own little hotel room or whatever. Um, following day, uh, after the murder of Eva, uh, we come to find that police have arrived at the academy to talk to the headmistress, who is played by Joan Bennett's Madame Blanc. Miss Tanner's like her right-hand woman, who's like the main dance instructor and teacher. Um, so, and really, I'll tell you... Both women, as younger women, are beautiful, gorgeous. They have their profile pictures on IMDb, and I'm just like flabbergasted just how gorgeous they are. Not taking away how they look in this movie because they are a bit older. But they're they're the classic Hollywood era where right. they're like super how they prim and proper, and like the the drawn on makeup and. Well, Valley Valley who plays Tanner is like brutal like she's really good as the the bitch you know she is isn't she yeah yeah she's nasty but she does that real well and then of course we talked about in the doc i think it was one of the i think it was uh stefana cassina who talked about uh joan bennett as madame block who was very graceful and uh very professional with her role and how she carried herself but anyway Susie shows up uh, investigators are talking to Madame Blanc about the young girl, Eva, who died, but Blanc says that Eva had been uh, expelled from the school prior to the murder, so I guess that's why they're like... They're like, we don't want her anymore. Yeah, we didn't have anything to do with that. Yeah, it's not us. It's her. It's not us. We broke up with her. But, uh, Miss Town, of course, takes Susie to get acquainted with the other dancers, and this is where she meets uh, Olga and Sarah and the rest of them. Uh, before practicing for a dance and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, not to go through every step of the movie, but right away there's this sense of, sense of connection with the witches or witchcraft and Susie when she first gets there because she's walking to go, she's walking down the hall to go down to the class and there's this woman who's like a, sort of like a housekeeper slash chef who has a little boy that tags along with her and they're sitting in the hallway and they look like she looks like she's just dusted like a piece of crystal so it's like this long triangular looking thing so it's like she's almost because witches crystals yeah. spells so she's almost like i have my new crystal i have my new person to uh use my but from people that i know who are quote unquote witches the crystals are not harmful. They're healing and helpful. Well, and that's the thing with witchcraft is you have some that say that they're good witches versus negative witches or whatever. In witchcraft, 
you do good because anything you put out into the universe comes back it comes you. back to you threefold. Which we kind of learned towards the end. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, this woman who's cleaning her crystal, Susie's walking down the hallway. There seems to be this like reflection off the crystal into Susie's face, which starts to make Susie kind of dizzy and whatnot, not feel well. So by the time she gets in class, she's not really feel like doing any dances. But Tanner is a hard ass, and she's like, "Look, you're not getting a special treatment, American girl. So get your ass in here." Ah, <laughs> uh, so, so. Yeah, yeah. Get, the, get, get in here. So, uh, you know, she started going through the practice motions, and Susie really, Harper does a great job of, I wouldn't even say Harper's a great dancer. I don't think she really was trained in that, but the way that she does that particular scene where she's looking both graceful yet, like, uh, disoriented works very well. She looked like, I don't know if you've ever seen a diabetic, but low blood sugar how like their face gets pale mm -hmm. and then they start like getting shaky so she's like this is an easy step just sh i've never worked with you show me what you got and she starts like doing the balance and she starts doing the the tombe and then but she's she, kind of struggling she's like <gasps> yeah she like leans and she's like and it's her acting is so great that she looks like I, w I wish I had a camera like but like she looks like up and she's yeah. like I know I need to and she's like inhaling and she's just it, I mean I don't know if you have ever yourself been maybe motion sickness but you're trying to fight it off or really like the, really really drunk and trying to prove to a friend that you're not really drunk like she was acting like well the low, the low bread pressure was a very good example because that's how it kind of feels like you're lightheaded you're mm. disoriented you're weak and she ends up collapsing and starts bleeding from the nose uh so at this point and this is probably all the setup from the witches we haven't got to who the witches are yet but all we know is she's arrived here and she passed out and that gives the school an opportunity to bring her into the school as far as a housing and a dorm because initially, as we discussed earlier in the, in the podcast, she wanted to stay with Olga, who had taken her on because she had lost her other roommate, Eva. So uh, Olga takes her into her personal home, I guess, or wherever she was staying outside of the school. But once uh, Susie collapsed, they put her in a room and they brought all her things to the to the school because Olga was probably a little paranoid about her being ill. So Olga's very pretentious herself and very snotty and uh, you know was one of those bad girls. But she didn't have to worry about too much being outside of the school. She didn't live there. I think too, <clears throat> like this. That's all we see of Olga. Like, yeah, yeah. She it. disappears pretty much after that. I I feel like um, because they had the murder and it was unplanned so the witches were not like quite ready to deal with Susie right so they're like oh stay with Olga well you know and then as soon as Susie passes out they're like we got your shit no big deal because they really do want Susie there <laughs> well Harper as soon as like when she's laying in bed and Tanner's trying to give her water she's not really wanting it because they're not like when they say, well, yeah, we brought your stuff here. She's like, oh, well, I didn't. <laughs> they didn't even give her a chance to, like, choose to stay out. They just brought her in. 
but that again we think that's really the plan of them when it comes to the girls that are housed there because they draw energy from these students in some way uh so this begins like what is this journey that Susie Bannon goes on at the school because uh while she's recovering they're bringing her food and drink as far as like trying to get better uh which we find out later the drink is probably some sort of blood or mixed with blood or or part of a spell yeah, or laced yeah. with something but yeah, Again, it's definitely laced with something because it kind of puts her to sleep, like it puts her in a drowsy mood. That, I'm sure it's it, it's drugged because Sarah stopped taking her food. Right. She stopped eating, and then when Susie later in the movie, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around, realized she stopped eating, and again with the vivid colors, Susie was they they prescribed wine to her, red wine, and. This is not... That'd be Neko's dream right there. Yeah, well, the, but it's it's not... Um, I, what's the right word? Fodder, maybe? Red wine will help if you, um, you need to build up your red blood cells. If you... Cause it, but that's like one glass of red wine. And they're like, you need to drink this wine. So every night she was drinking this wine and passing the fuck out. But then when later in the movie which we'll get to eventually but when she was kind of realizing she thinks the red wine is what is making her sleep so hard every night and she dumps it out into the sink and it's that like porcelain white sink and the way that the wine is dumped and like spills and it's like that splatter and the colors again with That's probably Argento symbolism yeah. there, yeah. So yeah, so basically, uh, as time goes on, Sarah has already stopped drinking and eating. Like, she's probably figured it out because her old roommate was Eva, who had died, and they were essentially talking about stuff that was going on. Eva was starting to discover things about the school and uh, discovering a coven of witches residing within the school. So before Eva could really give all the shit away, she passed away through the murder, and Sarah now is trying to kind of pick up the pieces from that. And so one night when Susie's still kind of in a basically drunken stupor going to sleep, Sarah's like listening to the footsteps of the women, the teachers and stuff who are walking in the hallways and trying to count where they're going. And that's when Susie kind of enlightens her because even in her kind of stupor state, she's like, yeah, they're not. They're not going outside. They're, not leaving. they're, going, they're going the going other the direction. Right. They're going to the right. They're not leaving. And that's when I was like, "Oh, you're right." But you can't keep Susie awake long enough to really figure it out. But then uh, Sarah's trying to keep notes of things, and then discovers that her notes are gone. So the school or whoever knows about the notes, and so the following night, Susie is still knocked out from the stuff. That she ate, you know, earlier in the day, the night, um, that Sarah starts seeing, like, weird lights approach above the doorways, and she gets paranoid and starts running, and at this point, somebody's trying to kill her, like, someone slashes at her, uh, she gets into a room, and there's this, like, very creepy moment where, <laughs> which I still laugh at, that I was telling Neko when I watch it, like, she gets into this room, and there's, like, this latch that just slips down on top of this thing so no one can get in. So this person on the other end of the, the doorway has this, like, blade, like, uh, 
straight edge razor or whatever, and they're trying to slowly push the you know through the door, the crack of the door, and the, the and like unlatch the lock. And, and so instead of like Sarah just simply holding the the thing down so they can't get in, she decides, well, I'm gonna go over here to where this little window is, pile up some little boxes and stuff, and try to crawl through the other side. Which she manages to do, but then she falls into this, like, pit of, like, barbed wire that's been sitting in his room. And she's tangled up in it. She can't get out. And then... And she actually said it was, like, barbed wire minus the razor blades. Yeah. So, when she jumped into it, it was still cutting into her. Right. And trapping her. And, again, one take, they, they were not into, like, multiple angles, multiple takes. That was... I don't know if it speaks to their budget or if it speaks to them as well, filmmakers. Well, I think you said it earlier. I think Argento wanted genuine reactions to something. So even though this isn't one of those cases where they were totally surprised by the story, I think when she jumps into this thing and she's getting, like, you know, ouchies, she's actually getting genuine reaction that he wants on camera. And, and he told her, you're going to jump into this, and he's like, okay. Yeah. And, but, of course, as she's tangled up, the killer comes and cuts her throat, and that's the end that we see of Sarah. Following morning, uh, Susie's looking for Sarah, and Miss Tanner comes in and says that she just left, picked up her belongings, and left. And just out of nowhere, just left. So Susie definitely thinks something suspicious about that. That's when she goes and talks to uh, Udo Kier's uh, character, Dr. Frank Mandel, who knew Sarah. I think they were. He was probably a psychiatrist or something. For I can't remember. He said he used to talk to her about things. He's, he he was talking to Sarah and oh, the other girl who oh, died. Uh, uh, Eva. Eva. Yeah. So he was. That's his only scene, and it's a great scene. And he was a psychiatrist or psychologist, a professor, somebody with lots of degrees, and. Um, Sarah had mentioned to Susie that she had a, a contact on the outside, and that's basically, like, how Susie's like, I'm going to contact this dude. And she sat down and talked to him about the occult and witches, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to listen to what his opinion was. And it was, didn't you feel like it was still so vague? Like, he wasn't committing to anything? Yeah, yeah. He was just kind of like, this is what they, he gave gave uh, Susie the folklore. Like, you know, this is the witch Marcos and blah, 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 and this is what they say, and she owns this place, and then, you know, they said she died, but they don't have any body, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he didn't seem very concerned about it. He was only concerned that she was interested in it, and so, like, it's more of like he was lecturing her about it, like... Well, like, why? He, like this is the mental illness part. Like, he was thinking that Susie and Sarah might be just losing their mind because ballet is a very tough discipline. Yeah. And when if you're in a boarding school and you're, you're going to ballet, you're going to class eight hours every single day, he was probably... This is, again, not directly said, but kind of implied where he's like girls yes you're you're under a lot of stress and i think that's what he was kind of trying to say and he he was trying to 
be like, these, this is the historical aspect of this. But if you want to learn more about the occult, you can talk to my, my professor, um, friend. professor friend, and he can give you some more information. And the other guy was uh, more open to, like, yeah. the occult is real, but... Udo was not. He he seemed to be more like this is the literal facts of what this building represents. He thought maybe the the history was just playing a part in our mind. Either and... that or, you know, he was thinking not in the occult sense. He was thinking like, okay, it is very mysterious now that Eva and Sarah have disappeared. He's thinking more of like maybe we should call the cops because they made mention about Sarah and her father worked for the Italian consulate and like I, I don't remember if it was one of the headmistresses who said we called the Italian consulate or if it was Udo who said it. But no, I think it was Madame Blanc because she was. They were basically saying that. Because the consulate, I think her father hadn't seen Sarah. Mm -hmm. so like, and he said he hadn't seen Sarah. So Blanc was like, well, she did leave. We just don't know where. And we don't know if she just met a boy or whatever. They were trying to kind of play it off as, like, they really didn't know what was going on. Uh, now, amongst all this, uh, Neko kind of alluded to it earlier. Um, Flavio Bucci, or Bucci, who plays Daniel, who's the pianist and the, the songwriter for the ballet that they're working on, he's a blind man with a, a, a guide dog, a German Shepherd. And, you know, for the most movie early on, you really don't think much of it. He's just there doing his piece and whatever. Uh, however, one day he's there and <laughs> Miss Tanner comes in and she's like seriously angry and she stops everything. She starts yelling and I was like, your dog! bit the little boy Albert and he hurt him and he had to go to the hospital so uh, Daniel's like well that's impossible my dog's a very loving dog it doesn't do this kind of stuff and they get into this kind of back and forth and she's throwing his cane and his jacket and he's kind of all riled up as a blind man so he gets his stuff he's going he's like ah fresh air she's like get out so a little bit later, we see him at like a local bar, pub, or whatever, and they got some German guys doing their little dance on the tables. He's having a couple of drinks. As a traditional German dance, right? So. The slapping and you know the the jumping around and all that good stuff. So finally, he leaves, and he's this is where Neko probably he's walking through this. Uh, I don't know what you would really call it. Um, the square. square, remember? Yeah, it yeah. was the square that... Well, I was trying to look for the words, but it's the German square. And that Hitler had actually made... His speeches. Speeches there. They have, like, while we were watching the doc, they were showing side-by-side -side pictures. Because it's, it's a very... This is why it's a big deal. It's a very grand square. Mm -hmm. And it's stone. And it's hard to light. And they did this shot mm -hmm. in the dark. So, they were just, like, insane. Yeah, so anyway, uh, Daniel's walking with his dog through this. He's alone. It's dark. There's a couple of cops, like, down the street a little bit at an intersection. I guess they're just there kind of watching what's going on with traffic or people. Uh, of course, through all this, this is the thing about this movie, is you know shit's getting real because the Goblin soundtrack is in full force. You hear the 
the what we would discover is the singer of Goblin who doesn't normally sing a lot of songs, but he's using his voice in a narrative way and he's kind of putting echo effects on it. So like, you know, which, which, you know, I don't know, I got caught that recently. Neko's like, I've been hearing that shit the whole time. Yeah, I can't believe you? you didn't hear that. You didn't hear witch. Right, right. So we know that when that starts picking up that the witches are starting to conjure a spell to get back at this this guy, Daniel. And so at first, you know, he's in a square and he's the dog's starting to ground bark at something and he's like he can't see anything because he's blind, but he's like, Who's there? Who's there? And next thing I know the dog attacks him. Uh, by the throat, and this is where we see the, the kind of puppeteer with the hand. But then we it, it's clever use because, again, it goes back to the dog and has some sort of, like, red meat or something that the dog can chew on, which symbolizes his throat and getting eaten alive. Cops show up, and that's the end of Daniel. It was just so crazy, though, because this dog is way too friendly. Yeah. And this is the only complaint I have about probably the entire movie. The dog is very obedient and very sweet and then you know the witches make him attack and they use the puppet to like make it look like the dog's biting his neck well then they flash back to the dog and it just looks like the dog is eating a treat or something he's like yeah i mean the, the reasoning for the attack on the kid is obviously the dog notices or understands no 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 the... I, I i understand all of that i'm just saying visually i look at this dog who is big and beefy and you're like this is totally going to be the meanest dog ever and they portray it because they've got the fake dog barking in the back and the gurring in the background and they have the like puppet but then when they flash back to this really really nice dog that's just like oh look snacks and he just is eating something and it doesn't look like he's attacking because his tail is wagging well, and he's, he's just like he's pulling like red whatever it is it, it's i on. that is my only complaint and if that's my only complaint about this movie that's fine because i don't want another mean dog i want a nice sweet dog that that dog was pretty fucking awesome like he was beautiful he was smart or she he who knows yeah, it could be she. but she was smart she was a guide dog to daniel and then they're making it out to be like this dog is gonna attack daniel and they did okay this is the only scene that i didn't really have a problem with that too much I, I, you know it's just part of the movie for me um okay so then we're starting to get down to the nitty-gritty here. The movie, we, we fast-forward now to Susie is deciding that she's no longer going to take the drink and food at night because she knows it's somehow affecting her in her sleep. So she dumps out the wine, washes it down the drain, and she, now she recalls how Sarah and her were counting the steps and where it was going. She's like, okay. Sneaks past the uh, house maid or whatever she is who's working in the kitchen talk with one of her co-workers and slips by her without being noticed even though the woman runs out into the hallway because she heard steps which which my complaint would be if you're trying to sneak around Susie you don't wear heels to yeah, do that yeah it's like clunk 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 you don't want to do that uh but we know it's a movie um 
So finally, she gets into a room where she believes they walked into. It's it's a really nice room. The walls and the the flowers are all cool. And she notices there's like three iris flowers on the wall. Red, white, and blue, I believe. And then she starts recalling what Eva was saying at the beginning of the film, that she didn't, didn't really understand at the first when she heard it. But as she's recalling it, Eva says, turn the blue iris. And so she goes up to it, Susie does, and it is like a, like a almost, I want to say, it's almost like metal-like. And so she's turning it. Yeah, like a doorknob. Yeah. And it opens up the side door, which takes her into a whole other room, hallway. And she goes in, and she can hear people talking. And so she's hugging the wall around this thing. There's just like sort of like blackish curtain that runs around with it. Almost like if you're in like a movie theater. It's very cool looking. Because behind the curtain there's like space. So she slips in behind it and makes her way to where this room is. This door with these people talking. And she looks in, peeks around the corner and she can see that there's Madame Blanc, uh, Miss Tanner, uh, the old woman who's in the kitchen with the young boy, the the big dude who sort of like their version of Jaws. I was going to say, he, he looked like Jaws. Yeah, so uh, they're all in here and of course Madame Blanc is saying, she's doing something where she's like we gotta get rid of the American girl. We gotta kill her. She's gotta die. And it's almost like they're praying but it's sort of like they're starting to cast these spells. So Susie's now seeing that these are the people that are responsible for all the crap that's going on. And in the midst of this, she turns, kind of like feels behind her and sees this uh, box coffin with Sarah's body in it. And it's like probably one of the most horrific things you'll ever see. Mm -hmm. The eyes are open. There's like pins in her eyes, pins on her wrists. Uh, She's laying there. Uh, You know, her throat's cut, blood pretty much dried up. It's everywhere. So she has to control herself from screaming. And then, of course, the Jaws dude comes down the hallway uh, and she hides and she has a secret room behind where Sarah was so she goes in there to avoid being seen by a big dude and uh, here's where the shit starts to really get crazy uh, shit goes down yeah uh, so we talked about earlier how these witches tend to use the energy from the dancers who live there for like the sources of power I guess when they you know cast spells and grow energy and power from it so there's a scene where there were some maggots dropping from the floor from rotted food and so they had to go and clean up all the rooms so everyone who was there living there had to go live in this space in the middle it looked like a gym almost um so they all had cots and whatnot and of course curtains to separate the boys from the girls and at one point, Sarah's talking with Susie, and the lights are out, and it's red again. Argento using his colors to full effect here. Uh, you see this shadowy person come down and lay down on the, top, on the opposite side of their curtain. And there's like this wheezing or snoring or sleeping, and Sarah's like, I've heard that before. Uh, but you don't know who it is. Fast forward back to where we were. Susie's in this room. And she again sees this bed with this curtain around it, and there's a shadow in there sleeping. And there's that wheezing. It's like, Aah. right. Uh, so at one point, Susie peeks back out the door. The big dude kind of looks over, kind of startles. She backs up, closes the door, and backs up, but knocks something over. It looks like a, a glass peacock with these like 
the feathers are kind of like glass spindles or some shit. It almost looks like, I guess the way the light's hitting it, it almost looks like the tail is like LED. Yeah. Um, that startles the person in bed, and that happens to be uh, Helena Marcus, the, the, the big witch, the, the main, main witch who the legends are all about. And she, uh, she sits up and she knows that Susie's there, like she can see her or whatever. Um, so she starts talking a lot of shit to Susie. She's like, oh, you think you can come here and kill Helena Marcus? <laughs> that was a good impression. <laughs> so Susie is picking up one of these little pieces of feather, but it's like uh, steel or something that was sitting in the thing. She's got it in her hand, and she's making her way to where uh, Marcus is and throws open the curtain by the bed, but there's nobody there. Like it, Marcus is literally invisible, but she's there. And so Marcus again continued to talk shit. She's telling her she's got death behind the door coming for her. And we see the doorknob sort of open up. And one of the most terrifying scenes in the movie is this hand reaches around, pushes it open, and it's the corpse of Sarah there. Pins and eyes and everything. And she's got this butcher knife. And she's got blood like her. She's and so she's starting to come at Susie. And, uh, Susie decides, like, well, what am I going to do here? So she's, like, looking at Sarah, and she looks back over, and she can see, because, there, again, there's a storm going on. Whenever these women are casting spells, there's just bringing storms and shit. Mm -hmm. So there's, like, this little outline of, like, electricity around Helena Marcus that she can see. She can't see the full body, but there's, like, this outline. And she decides, well, fuck it. She just takes a stab, hits Helena in the throat, killing her and then that's when Sarah's body just kind of disappears and as Neko pointed out about witchcraft everything these women have done is starting to come full circle now and I guess with the death of Helena Marcus it kind of crushes the whole yeah it just it, there's like a scene where the building itself is starting to come down and you know the the witches in the other room they're all like you know, their faces are crushed, you know, blood's pouring out of them, because, you know, this is the shit that's happening if we're failing, I guess, to kill her. Uh, Susie makes her way out of it, and as she gets out in the rain again, uh, can't avoid the rain, gotta have that rain. Gotta have the rain. She's walking away with, like, as we talked about, it, kind of like the sense of where, but at the same time a little bit wiser about life, and the academy starts catching on fire to where it's going to burn to the ground again. Um, I had to rewatch Inferno and Mother of Tears just to kind of remember how the stories played off of it because I, at the time I think I first watched it I didn't realize they were part of the Suspiria legacy until later. But uh, I didn't really care for those two movies as much as Suspiria but if I was going to try to follow the storylines again I'd probably have to go back and try to rewatch them. But uh there's a little article by RogerEbert.com. Uh, I'll get to some more of it, but there was a really cool description of how I feel about this movie. Uh, it says, It's a rite of sound, theory, and imagery that somehow managed to come across as both gruesome and poetic. It was unlike anything I had seen before, and even though I cannot count the number of times that I have viewed it over the years, I continue to come away from it stunned by its combination of visceral horror and visual beauty. And I agree with that. It's, you know, Visceral it's horror, horror and... Visual beauty. I agree, too. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's hard. Uh, you know, I've never done any 
particular thing and this particular movie in, in its entirety. I thought uh, ep- a podcast on this would be really good because there really is so much to say that you can't really just say in like two words. And I don't think, you know, people often have their favorites when it comes to horror movies and some people are like, well, I'm surprised this is number one, but the reality is for me it is because of many different factors. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and argue that it's the strongest story plot-wise ever, but it's got so much else going on with it, and as we talked about, it has a deeper, there's deeper things about it that you appreciate more than the actual story being shown to you. And again, like uh, just the actors involved, like the women who were in this film, did a really, really good job. Like it, it really was good from top to bottom. Um, so yeah, I just I really loved it a lot. I know you did. You've loved this since you showed it to me. We met in 2002, and I think he showed it to me. It was one of the first movies that he uh, was like, have you seen Suspiria? You like dancing. And I'm like, okay. But I honestly, this deep dive has given me a brand new appreciation for Suspiria for so many reasons, because I, like, Anubis saw it when he was younger, so it really, some of the scenes scared him and for me i saw it when i was like 21 so i'm like well, i you're... wasn't super scared but i dug it you know like well and i think it's it's interesting because you know when you and i we kind of laugh about nightmare on Elm street you know when i saw that as a teen it scared the shit out of me yeah but i saw it you as were like a child and yeah it didn't, and it didn't scare me at all but then, like, we talk about it, whereas, like, when I saw Spirit for the first time, it scared the shit out of me. When I saw The Ring for the first time, it scared the shit out of me. But see, you and I saw The Ring together for the first time, and it scared the shit out of me. But that's what I'm saying, is, like, you can kind of reinvent yourself as time goes on with certain movies, and it can have different effects on you. Um, other movies, I can watch stuff like Friday the 13th or Halloween, and even though they're creepy, they don't really scare me they don't give you that kind of like right like a couple of weeks ago i did the ring as the retro dvd throwback Mm -hmm. and that was the first time i've watched it since the first time i watched it when we watched it together back in 2002 there are some movies like poltergeist is another one most of poltergeist i'm okay until shit gets crazy and then the clown is under the bed. And then then the in-ground pool that's not done. And you move the bodies, but you, did, you didn't move the... You moved the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies. Like, that whole part, like, I have to stop sometimes. I don't watch Poltergeist a lot. <laughs> I, I don't. I know we joke about Poltergeist a lot, especially that line. You son of a bitch! You moved the headstones! But you didn't move the bodies. Like, I, I, I try to make myself laugh because how sooner s- or later that's going to be a film that we're going to laugh at. Because we, you know, we initially were not terrified but scared about The Exorcist. But now that because of Doctor Evil, it just made everything. The power come. of Christ compels you. So now we just kind of make fun of it more than anything. However. You and I both were a little bit creeped out when they released the uncut version. The crab walk. Down with the, the crab walk and the, like, misfits face. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it just, 
it, it was like a weird face that came out of nowhere, and I was like, that's scarier than anything else in this movie. <laughs> I... So, when I look at... Back to what I was saying. When I look at Suspiria, I'm not looking at it to scare the shit out of me like the ring did. I think the one... The thing that scared me the most about the ring, honestly, was how they were frozen and petrified after they were, like, scared to death, basically. Um... This is not something, Suspiria is not something that's going to scare me the way I was watching The Ring. What will scare me, I don't know. I, it's The Ring and Poltergeist right now, but, but, but for me, for Suspiria, it's more of an atmospheric type movie. It's more of appreciating what they've done over the years. It's understanding what they've done, understanding where they came from, why Dario Argento had this idea, how it came about. Um, for instance, uh, one thing I was speaking with Anubis off mic about was ballet is not just ballet. There are different studies of ballet and one is, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, it's, it's the Italian study. It's Cacchetti, I think is how you say it. It's He's a maestro. He is a professional, and he is the one who came up with this, this regimen. And what I found really interesting was the way that, that you, people describe the Cacchetti uh, regimen of ballet is Maestro Cacchetti. He wanted a very specific... Um, like lessons. Week one, you do this. Week two, you do this. We're going to work on this. We're going to work on that. There are tests. There is a certification. It's not like that in American ballet. It's not like that everywhere. And what I was kind of comparing the Cacchetti study of ballet, since, you know, Argento is Italian, I was thinking to myself, like, because this is a witch's coven, it's, you know, I'm hoping, because this is an Italianish film, they're kind of pulling things from um, the Cacchetti style of ballet, and be, when you're thinking of spells and you're thinking of doing rituals, it's very regimented, and I'm like, that's kind of perfect. So you would have witches directing these dancers to do basically what they do all the time, which is practice their ballet, like at, at that beginning where they're like, oh, come on, Susie, we haven't seen you before. I just like to see this. It's an easy step. Mm -hmm. Like they're practicing their steps. But in reality, their steps are becoming either spells themselves or, like, power to be absorbed into the coven. I know that is, like, a weird kind of paradox that I've created in my mind, but it's only because I appreciate and I love ballet so much. I love it. I've never been a very good ballerina, even when I was a kid, and I've... I, 
think part of the reason I love it so much is because I know what it takes to be a ballerina. And when you're seeing this regiment that is very brutal, it's ballet is fucking metal. These women, their toes bleed. They dance on broken toes. They dance on broken, I'm not joking, broken ankles that they, they go out there, they'll wear their little sling all week and they'll take it off and they'll go dance. And it's not uncommon. It is so strict. And I'm like, this sounds like fucking witchcraft. Like ballet and witchcraft sound very similar. I just, to me, that's what drew me in. I'm like, and then you have like all the psychedelicness and all, but if you're, if we're going to go just purely on me having my little conjecture, it's the whole psychedelic, like lights and colors. Plus I know how fucking brutal ballet can be on your body. And I know from my own personal experience, I'm not cut out to be a ballerina. I only studied it up to a certain point in my life and it's it, you get to a point where it's like, mm, yeah, stop. Your body says stop and your teachers say stop. So when you get to these elite levels like that are in this movie, all I can picture are how their feet are fucked up, how most of them don't have toenails. This is the, they should make a horror movie about ballerinas. They don't have toenails. They have black swan. Yeah, well, I mean, beyond black swan, that's like a psychological thing. I'm talking about gory. Ballerinas toenails, most of them have zero toenails. They just break There's off. There's parts of the remake that have some of that, even though it's all tied in with the witchcraft and stuff. But there's some body horror, I guess you would call it. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, uh, Fun I thoughts. think it's, I think it's best summed up for this is. Suspiria truly is one of the absolute classics of the horror genre, and anyone who considers themselves to be true students of cinema owe it to themselves to experience it for themselves, especially if they get a chance to see it on the big screen where it belongs. We do definitely need to do that. Suspiria, if it gets played somewhere on a theater, you know, just for one day or a weekend, we need to go check it out and have fun with that. Anyhow, let's get back into our music. Music. Next block, I got some Sunless and Exhumed. We also got Pray for Nothing, Atomic Drop, and Elimination. But here's Be Nothing, Engrossed in Sighting Compulsions, uh, provided by Everlasting Speed Records. Uh, we'll be back. Very
What's up, everyone? This is Richie from Grave Huffer, and you're listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko on Metal Tavern Radio. Rank it the fuck up.
Metal Time Radio podcast episode 141. Neko is currently making us some dinner, so she's not here to close it out with me. But um, hope you all enjoyed this episode as we dedicate our love for the movie Suspiria from Dario Argento, 1977. As always, many thanks to the promotional and uh, labels that give us the music that we play, as well as the other uh, individuals that send music to us through friends and all stuff. I know, like, Sense of Noise, uh, Beyond the Grave, October Thorns, they all contacted me personally for the music they uh, wanted air, so happy to do that for you all. Uh, yeah, so I hope you all enjoyed this. We will catch you all next time on the flip side. And as the movie Suspiria and Dario Argento would say, victims by design. And we have some elimination closing everything out. See you all later.